Hello and welcome once again to the Bioprocess Insider Expression Platform, a semi-regular podcast delving into some of the areas surrounding biomanufacturing that don't quite make it into the news pages of your favourite B2B website, Bioprocess Insider, but do pique the interest of the wider biopharma industry. Now, my name is Dan Stanton and I am the founder and editor of Bioprocess Insider. And while it's normally me asking the questions, For this episode, I am delighted to hand over the reins to our reporter, Millie Nelson. Now, Millie hosted a DEI coffee morning at the recent BPI Europe conference in Vienna, Austria, sitting down with industry stalwart Nadine Ritter to discuss the pitfalls of the biopharma space when it comes to diversity and inclusion, and discuss how minorities women in particular, can attempt to push open the many gates that continue to block real talent from rising within the ranks. Nadine Ritter, you may well know, is the President and Analytical Advisor at Global Biotech Experts and has also served on the Bioprocess International Advisory Board pretty much since its inception 20 years ago. There's also a brief cameo from Isabel Lacroix, facilitator and regulatory lead at Bioforum. So here it is in its full glory, complete with the odd jingle of coffee cups. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Being a woman in science, even in academia, you know, there's been challenges, right? But, but um, one of the things that I think personally has helped me a great deal is, is participating in professional organizations. Um, and even today, with you know, although we've got a lot more parity in, between males and females in some of these situations, there's a lot of, of opportunity for people from a wide array of, 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 of classifications, whether it be gender, or whether it be race, or ethnicity, or ge- geography, or whether you're in a, a, an industry, or regulatory, or large company, small company, contract lab, vendor lab. We've got a lot of representation that we can mine out in our in our field, and it all starts with the pathway, and that's what happened to me. I, I began getting involved in the Association of Women in Science, which was predominantly associated with academia at the time, and um, worked my way through that organization over about 10 years, doing everything from, from cleaning newsletters to science fair, judging in awards, to ultimately becoming president of the chapter in Houston. And then when I went into industry, I did the same thing in Chicago, uh, and I did ultimately ended up president of AWIS in Chicago. Um, and then I got involved in the industry organizations. And again, I got the opportunities to do everything, you know, volunteer for everything you could. But all of these things have an opportunity for people to see you. It gives you the opportunity to contribute and learn and network. But very importantly, now that I am where I am in my career, uh, and I've been the first woman in a lot of ways through biotech, um, probably because I'm the loudest woman <laughs> in biotech. But I've been the first woman. I was the, in, in some professional organizations, and recently I just I just rolled off the board. But I was the first female 
president of the board of a major scientific organization that's 25 years old. So it's not something which happens quickly. You, you just can't reach out and pick people who are at the beginning of their career for very senior, you know, experienced opportunities. But you become that candidate in a couple of years if you proactively engage and if the people who are giving you the opportunities proactively pay attention. And so that, you know, that's the, to me, that's the big message for DEI. If it's just virtue signaling on a, on a website, I don't care. You know, show me the data, show me what you did. And we have good models. We have the model of you know, women going through the system, and we just need to apply that same model and those same metrics to a whole broader category of, of individuals who are underrepresented in decision-making uh, and, and, and discussions. You mentioned kind of the virtue signaling side of diversity and inclusion, so this idea that it becomes, I guess, a tick box for companies to say, look at what we're doing, we have a committee, um, all of our colleagues um, have done a training programme in this for two hours or whatever, and they're knowledgeable on the uh, subject. But I guess the issue with that is that when it becomes a tick box, it's left there, it has no room to grow, it's kind of stagnant, and that pathway then is already closed off. You know, if there's people in that committee, they're probably not really going to be pushed to the best of their ability. So how do you overcome those challenges um, with the committees that you've been a part of and introducing those changes? If DEI is just a checkbox, then a couple of things happen. You're right that after everybody's got the website up and the, and the, and the glossy pictures of all the different diverse characters that they've got in, in their organization, and everybody gets highlighted, gets a blue ribbon, that's great. But what happens next year and next year and next year and next year? So it's that, that longevity, that pathway that has to be constantly checked. What are we doing? What are we doing? And it's not just checked by the committee, it's checked by the people who are empowered to make those decisions in the organization, whether it's industry or whether it's a, a volunteer scientific organization or if it's academia, it's the people who are in charge. So what the committee needs to be doing is monitoring and put metrics in place every with frequency, every year, every couple of years to make sure that what is the pro what what does the profile look like now at this level? And what does it look like at the next time at this level? Um, the other thing about the DEI being a checkbox, and this is very unfortunate, is that if you happen to be someone who's chosen to fill that box, everybody assumes it's because you have that characteristic that needed the ticket. You know, you are the blonde, you are the brunette, you know, you are from this whatever country. And they don't, and, and that minimizes your true value. And, and so what we're looking for with DEI, yeah, I'm very glad we're talking about it in industry. It's way overdue. But let's not talk about it because it's the newest thing that's been on CNN or, you know, it's, we, that, that's useless to me. What we really need to do is systemic, continued longevity of these pathways and, and don't let DEI become something that minimizes the contributions of people that are in those categories because they really are good and they shouldn't be considered, you know, a token. You know, a couple of times I remember in my career I felt like I was a bit of a token. You know, I mean, I was glad to have the opportunity, but I had to prove myself, and the people that I worked with were very surprised, like, oh, oh, you can do this, as opposed to, oh, yeah, she's just checking the box so that somebody can get their bonus this week. So, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the long haul, it's the long term. We've done a very good job over the years with like, introducing diversity into college education, for example, and we've got great candidates that have come out of college, and now what are we doing? And I know you just said, you know, there's been times you felt kind of the token and people have been surprised that you actually have the skill set to carry out the work and, you know, 
you'd like to think at some point it's not that kind of tick box exercise but to deal with I guess the systemic challenges that are there how do you feel it's best to approach them and I guess do you have any solutions or ideas of challenging them and, and, and changing it? Yeah, I mean, awareness is the first part of it, and, and certainly having a, having a DEI conversation at this meeting is another part of that awareness. Um, but again, having companies be able to determine their metrics, where are you? And for us, I think the low-hanging fruit, I think, is going to be professional organizations. It's very difficult to change an industry culture. You know, it's, it is what it is, and they're going to have their own struggles. But how do we get people to be noticed, to have on their resumes these opportunities? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say most of it is, is volunteer. You don't get paid for any of it. Um, initially, there are, you can get, get trade-offs later in your career because you're given the opportunity to learn and you're given the opportunity to demonstrate your capabilities. And then those people who are in those organizations see you and they get the opportunity, and then you get to put more things that you can bring to the table for your industry, for your company. I mean, I remember, how many people remember like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? I know most of you weren't born then, but for those that were, you know, everything was about get a mentor, get a mentor, you must have a mentor. If you have a mentor, you're gonna, you know, crap out in your career. It's like, how do I find a mentor? Well, you look worthy of a mentor. <laughs> you can't just tap somebody on the shoulder and go, can you mentor me? I'm not gonna do that with my time unless I know you're interesting and worth it, right? So this, this concept of, 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 of career development is an integral part of DEI because it's diversity inclusion at the level of the starting gate, not just at the top. And we will never get that diversity and inclusion equity at the top unless we remediate these gates. And I think that professional scientific organizations have been a, a, a big part of my career. And I'd like to, I'm gonna go down and talk to Isabel from, she's had the same experiences as I have. So can you just talk a little bit about your experiences in the industry organizations and how they've really helped you and what you do now? Yes, so um, now I work for Bioform as a professional facilitator and um, it all started like 20 years ago when I was in industry and I took upon myself to do the facilitation. It allowed me to get exposed to lots of different projects, not only my projects. So you learn, you build your knowledge, get your acumen and um, now I'm a professional facilitator so when I wasn't happy anymore in, uh, in industry for different reasons then I took that special skill that I had developed and now it's my new, my new job and uh, it's fantastic so <laughs> but as Nadine said it's all, it's all, it all starts with doing things above and beyond your day job. It's, it's seeing that bigger picture and uh, doing things and say, actually, if I do that, I'd be better at my job as well. And that's how you, how you progress. Thanks, Isabel. I think what you just said there about kind of going above and beyond in your day job seems so important, I guess, at an individual level um, to better yourself, but also I guess work environment in general as well so in terms of um, diversity and inclusion at work people going above and beyond their day job above and beyond the tick list um, you'll enrich and you'll have a better a sister that people genuinely believe in um, and in that you should be uh, more enriched and uh, more level playing field I guess for, for everybody
what we're saying here, it sounds like we're putting the burden on the individual who's coming through the gate, but I don't mean that at all. I think I mean that organizations and management and businesses need to open the gates and need to make sure that, that when they look around at whatever level they might be at, do we do we do we have you know faces here that represent all the voices of our industry or of our organization? And if not, why not? And is there a gate that we've inadvertently placed at the level below or two levels below? And we did that. When, when we were looking at, at some of the professional organizations that I've been involved in in the last couple of years with DEI, we recognized that we had great representation here and here, and suddenly it fell off a cliff. So what's the gate? Where's the gate here? And how do we remediate the gate? Because there's no lack of interested, engaged, talented individuals. As long as they know that they can make a difference, they will make a difference. But if we, if they sit in an organization or sit in their industry, and they've been there for three years, five years, seven years, and they don't find them, and, and they've been active, they've been, it's been known that they're interested in, in, in engaging, and they see that the same people get picked every time, they're going to very quickly get discouraged. So it, it's not a one-way street. You have to be engaged, but you have to get the gate off of it as well. And the only way it works is if, if the of the organizations commit to looking at the metrics and saying where does that funnel where does that funnel start start weeding out people you know and unfortunately for women until COVID until women for women it was a lot of us that were you know childbearing age right and that was the classic cut right you fell off the you took the mommy track right even with daycares and stuff it's still like when I first went to work for industry I was told don't ever tell your your manager that you're going to take your child to the doctor you are going to the bank. You are going to get your oil changed. But you never have pictures of kids at your desk, but never talk about them, and never admit that you feed them or have anything to do with them. They're just there as decoration. But you, you, you always, because that's what that's what the men were doing at the time in the 80s and 90s. You know, men men had to go to the bank. Men had to go and get a haircut. Men had to go get their oil changed. But they really didn't. But that's what they said. COVID has opened this up. Zoom meetings and things, working from home, having kids at home has made it made us even more acutely aware that hey, two parents might be involved, and and you know and and, and that that's helped a lot with that, that that assignment of mommy track. But that's just one element of diversity and inclusion. There's so many more elements. What other hidden biases do we have in our culture, in our organization culture? that we need to look at and just reevaluate and then remove the gates. Just remove the gates. Don't get, you're not promoting somebody just because of their characteristic. You're removing the gates and seeing who comes through. And that is really important. That's why I said it's, it's a long-term strategy, not a short-term strategy. Going back to what you just said about, you know, we need the top of the organization to kind of open the gates. They need to self-reflect, look at their metrics. How would you suggest that they do that in a sense of making sure that they have new people coming up, uh, being part of the committee, um, kind of almost like a rotation, I guess. Um, how, how are they going to do that? So, so one, one of the good things is that when you do get through your career and you are involved in the organization, you might get put in like an organizing committee, uh, a task force or an organizing committee, and, and that's status. I mean, that shows that you are, you are an active contributor, top in your field. The problem with that is that no one volunteers to give up the status. Once you've been on the committee a long time, and I don't mean like two years or four years, I mean like 20 years, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have a lot of experience, you do, and your, and your, your contributions are valuable, but you are taking a place. 
unless you want those organizations to have 250 member committees, which is completely unwieldy, how can that organization look at their committee structure and, and, and determine that how do we keep fresh faces but not lose continuity and not lose the seniority? And so for some organizations, we're having the conversations now about, let's say that you, know, you come on a, a committee and, and you're there for a couple of years, so maybe there's a two-year cycle or a three-year cycle. Third of the committee rolls off, third of the committee comes on with new opportunities, and a third of the committee is legacy. But the most time you can spend on a committee in any one of those three categories may be nine years or six years depending upon the industry. But it can't be infinite, right? Because very few people will voluntarily remove themselves because it's fun and it's exciting and, and you learn things and your name gets to have that on your CV. But but that's 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 a game. So how do you do that? You know, without disrupting the brain trust, how do you do that? And it's a, it's a, it's a tough one, but we are working on it. That's really important, what you've just said, in terms of making sure that you have this continuance of growth. Um, and I guess if you have the same committee, maybe bringing the same issues, or not different issues, but with the same kind of thought process to it, you're probably going to hit kind of like a stagnant uh, a response and you're not going to actually be seeing positive change and actual change in the company in, in comparison with, with other people. Um, and I guess that kind of leads us on to what would you like the future to look like for women in, in biotech but also diversity um, in general and what do you what do you think it will realistically look like? So I guess they're kind of two different questions, but what you'd like it to look like and what you actually think it will be. Well, I mean, of course what I'd like it to look like is that we have equal representation from all sectors. Again, not just you know male and female, but, but races, ethnicity, geography, company type, you know, classic products, novel products, you know, around the world. So all of those things would be great to make sure that we have that kind of representation at the table and contribution to people's careers. I do think that COVID has opened up our, our ability to be able to at least geographically reach more people than what we were doing in face-to-face. Face-to-face is incredibly rich, there's no doubt about that. But I think that the, 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 the COVID, the, the tiny bright lights of it were that, that it did open up a lot of opportunities for people to contribute significantly, even though they weren't physically located in the place where the organization was, that's massive. Um, but then again, what are we going to do with that, right? So what I'd like to see is that a lot of these you know, well-known, well-established, legacy, professional organizations for biotech, and there are several, which are very, you know, like this one is a good example, I'd like to see them have their organizing committees, I'd like to see them have their, their leadership take on board how can we engage, you know, where, where can we remove the gates for people that aren't in Europe? Where can we remove the gates for people that aren't in America, you know, or, or, or in other countries? Where can we remove, remove the gates for people who represent CROs or vendors or small companies or new companies or you know, even legacy companies? Because the field up to this point has been dominated by the big players with the traditional pipelines, with the traditional diversity or not lack thereof, and it's been done great, but we can do better. And, and I think we've already seen in the last couple of years, you know, especially with like vendor organizations, how much novel stuff we can learn when we just move the game, right? So that's what I'm hoping. I think as well, uh, 
what you just said in terms of how do we open the gate in Europe, how do we open the gate again in the US. I never actually kind of thought about the idea that there could be different issues within about the same topic in different countries. So I guess that's something else that having that kind of topic more openly discussed, but reaching people more geographically, it may bring about um, new challenges um, and you may need, I guess, different approaches and solutions to deal with different countries and different company issues. Um, so I guess there needs to be a more open discussion and a wider range of solutions. We've also learned that in some countries, you aren't, you aren't allowed to even ask people what their identification is, or you can ask them, you know, what their job history has been. You can see where they live, um, but you. Some countries have a prohibition against asking for their their gender, their race, their ethnicity, and so then how? Then the only way that you could have that is if you have face-to-face -face meetings, or because there are legal prohibitions against that to prevent discrimination in hiring people, but then it also works against us a little bit when we're trying to do that DEI thing, we're trying to say, do we have enough representation here? So some of those are just even externally imposed constraints about, da about information, about data. But you have to respect that and find ways to work around it. I'd really be interested for people who are here to just maybe tell us what your experience has been and if you have an idea of what we could do to be able to remove the gates in any capacity to make our industry richer at the top at the, at the more senior level. So yeah. Hi, um, I can definitely share my experience, but uh, let me start with my question. Do you have suggestion on KPI uh, that will help company build a a diversity talent pipeline. Oh yeah, I have a couple of opinions. I have opinions on everything. <laughs> Ask Isabel. Ask Vicky. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it starts with asking the question, right? But it's not that's that's by no means the end of it, right? So I think companies need to. I don't know if you if you send out annual surveys for departments, or if I mean you've got to somehow collect the data of the different levels of the organization and then begin to look, as I said, unless you see where the pain points are, when you see the, where you see the gate, when you identify an invisible gate, then the companies put together an, an action plan to try to be able to open the gate enough to allow people to come in, to, to, make, it, to make them qualified and visible to the next level or to the next opportunity. So it's a matter of, we're all scientists, right? So we need data. So it's a matter of companies surveying, and, and again, in some countries, you can't formally ask certain categories. But you can get organizational roles from your, 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 your different departments, and you can begin to assemble, I don't want to say succession plans, I don't mean that, but you can see where people are and where were they three years ago and five years ago and you know seven years ago, and you can see where the, where, you, you'll see very clearly where the cutoff is of where you're losing people, and then why, and then figure out why. And don't just talk to the people who are above them, do a 360. You know, get surveys sent to everybody above and below and around where that gate point might be because undoubtedly what the people who are looking up at the gate are seeing is not what the people who are looking down at the gate might see. That's why it's a gate. Thank you. And I had a very recent experience, like last week, where we want to recruit somebody. And uh, I, came, I came in with, they need to be able to do this, they need to be able to do that, I want this, I want that, and so and I had a fantastic conversation with uh, HR and they, they really coached me there to say, well, what is it truly important? And then it allowed me to expand 
um, I think, well, what's really important is that they have this and that. The rest I can teach them. And, uh, and so we removed the gate because I started with a very, very narrow uh, idea of who I wanted. And discussion with HR, I think it's the first time in my life I had a really fruitful <laughs> discussion with HR. But it, it was so fruitful that I'm sharing it today. So it, it's also discussing with colleagues, discussing above, discussing below and sideways to really know what are the important qualities of uh, the people you want. And uh, for me that was just eye-opening. It's just like when I had, I was the, the victim of <laughs> doing diversity or anything else because I knew I wanted this and that and that. And it's just by talking to others then they opened my, my eyes. And I hope we'll be that's successful. That's a great, that's fantastic Isabel, yeah. that's very gratifying. Yeah. And that's another example. If some, if people like you know me and Isabel who live through the system to this point, if we were blind to a gate, then imagine people that never did what we did that would that would be even more blind to a gate. So it's that awareness. It's that it's that awareness that there there are invisible gates. We do talk about the glass ceiling, right? But but that's it's really just gates at different levels. And when you start getting funneled out early, then you never have the opportunity to even reach the glass ceiling. We broke it. You're welcome, but but uh, but certainly the the action is for organizations, professional organizations, industry, you know, academia. Well, academia is notorious because it's very stratified. Um, but identify the gates and then try to figure out how to remove them, because there are very talented people all over. Um, and if you just give them a chance to get through, I think about the Kentucky Derby, which was run two weekends ago. You know, and all these horses are at the gate and it opens up and they take off. You know, you can't, you're not gonna, if somebody really isn't happy moving forward or engaged, that's fine, that's their choice. But they shouldn't be barred from the opportunity if they want to, if they, if they really do. So that's where our task is. And I guess that kind of poses the question, how much talent is being kept behind that the industry is missing out on, especially when a lot of companies that I speak to say they have issues at the moment with being able to recruit at the speed in which the industry is moving and they're having to come up with new initiatives to hire and that's sometimes hiring internationally, work perks and things like that. So it seems that you know opening these gates could also mean you have an influx of uh, new hires and experts who are going to come through. Yeah, and that's, that's where we would say things like uh, training, training, training. <laughs> It's, it, there, there's all kinds of opportunities there, but you're right, we do have this now, you know, unless you're actually at the bench or in the operations where you've got to physically do something, a lot of the work that we do can be done remotely, which does open up your talent pool into places where somebody that's really good but just doesn't want to relocate. Um, again, talking about internationally, you have, you have your talent pool is now much bigger when you have the kinds of positions that allow remote work because then you, it's a win-win, right? And, and uh, we just have to look around and see what's available to us, and we have to inform people that we are removing gates. And please, please get engaged. You know, don't get discouraged. Please get engaged because if we don't see them, and the people who remove the gates don't have those candidates, then it's going to sound like, well, why did I bother doing all this? You know, we went through all this exercise, and we don't have any different candidates than we had before. And so it's it's a two-way street. That kind of brings us to a close, I think. But that was an amazing conversation. Thank you for speaking so openly. Um, and it was great. Thank you to everyone.
Great. Thank you very much.